Hi there. Welcome to Season 2 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Mandy Chambliss. Mandy lives in the Austin, Texas area with her husband and their three dogs. She's an artist and a writer and has a great love for the outdoors. Hey, Mandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. Great to have you here. Please begin by letting everyone know what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with and how old you were. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer when I was 28 years old. Stage 3C ovarian cancer, and you're 28. 28. It seems kind of young for any cancer diagnosis. Well, no, not any, but a lot. Uh, specifically ovarian cancer, it is incredibly uncommon. However, that being said, we are finding, I'm finding I'm not the only one, and I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. Uh, but uh, I was misdiagnosed for quite a while, specifically because of my age and because ovarian cancer is typically not diagnosed uh, that young. Most of the women are 50s and 60s. Mm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I was misdiagnosed myself. I was 36 and passing blood, and my doctor told me I had hemorrhoids. And after maybe six or seven months of four visits across that window of time, mm-hmm. I finally asked to see a specialist. And he gave me a digital and immediately asked if I had cancer in my family. And there began my whole wow. story. Because when you're young, they don't always consider all the possibilities. I had three different doctors explicitly say to me, it's not cancer, you're too young, you have no family history. They didn't even entertain or explore the idea. And how long did that go on? This is where we are. This was, that was three months, three months, three different doctors. Three months of that. Wow. Actually more doctors than three. There are three that I saw regularly, but probably I'd say four or five. Yeah. My Wow. And so you saw four or five doctors. Which doctor discovered the cancer? How did that happen? Good question. So I was not diagnosed until I was already under anesthesia for a laparoscopic procedure to remove a cyst. cyst. I'm doing air quotes since you can't Mm -hmm. see me. A cyst from my ovary. So I was not diagnosed until I was on the table. And my doctor, my surgeon, was a bit surprised as he began the procedure and, you know, saw what he saw. So he had to halt everything and go out to the waiting room to tell my family. So they all found out before I did. Oh, my goodness. Add insult to injury, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Their 28-year-old daughter and mm-hmm. sibling is mm-hmm. having a surgery, and they come out and say, actually, we found cancer. Yep, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so take that wherever you want to, but that's where we are. <laughs> All right. So before we go further, will you explain as well as you can uh, what stage 3C is? Yeah. So stage 3C ovarian cancer, in essence, means that the cancer has metastasized to other parts of your body, and it's also been found in some lymph nodes. So by the time I was diagnosed... uh Man, it's a laundry list, but I'll give you the highlights here. It was on my bowels. It was on my omentum. Uh, I did have some lymph nodes removed. 
It was, I don't think it was on my bladder, but I can't recall. Definitely kind of all over my abdomen at that point. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking up now. The, the omentum, that's a fold. What is, what is the omentum? So the omentum is the lining of your stomach that kind of just helps keep all of your organs in place, right? So for example, I'll give you an idea of what happens with me now when I eat because I don't have an omentum. I don't have that lining. So quite often when I eat, even if I haven't eaten too much, my stomach expands because that lining is now gone. They did remove it. Ah, so mm-hmm. it, it wraps around the stomach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wraps around the abdomen and just kind of keeps everything into place. So if you think about where my cancer was and the fact that it had metastasized, it makes sense that that it would have adhered to the omentum. And so they removed that, they lasered my bowels. So thankfully I, I got out of the whole system or out of the whole situation without any ostomy bags or anything like that. And then they did a chemo wash in my abdomen as well. You had a chemo wash. I did. And I also had intraperitoneal chemo, which is just uh, heaps of fun within itself. <laughs> and intro, will you say that again? What is that? Intraperitoneal. So intraperitoneal chemo is a type of chemo. It's a vehicle for, for injecting the chemo, if you will. And so I have a port scar up on my chest, as do many of us, but I also have one in my abdomen around my hip bone. And so what they did is they injected chemo, I believe it was two liters, yes, two liters of chemo into my stomach, just into the body of my stomach, if you will, the opening. And I would lay on the bed for about 30 to 45 minutes on my back. And then I flip over on one side and lay there for a while. And then I flip over on my other side. So the idea is it's almost like a chemo wash, um, but it is two liters. So I would walk out looking pregnant, two liters of Taxol and Cisplatin floating around in my stomach. And we did this six times. And it's so brutal, most women can't make it through the entire regimen. And so they've also found that it does not prolong lifespan. So it's not a standard of care anymore. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So literally inside of the stomach. Yeah. And then because they removed the omentum, it would really expand. Yeah. Yeah. And so to be clear, just to define the difference, when I say inside the stomach, I don't mean my actual like organ, the stomach, my abdomen, abdomen. Yeah. My my abdomen is probably the easier way to define that. So it's because my stomach, everything had to be washed with this chemo because it's stage three C it's such an, it's such an advanced stage that even now I'm 12 years out. I'll be 12 years out in February and we'll talk about how incredibly uncommon that is and how thankful I am to be here to even having this conversation Mm. with you. But um, the likelihood that I do not still have cancer within me is, it's very unlikely. It's just probably dormant. So the idea with the chemo wash is to attack any remaining cancer cells that had sloughed off from original tumors and metastasized tumors that are just floating around in the rest of my body. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was in addition to the chemo wash. And will you tell everyone who's listening what a chemo wash is? Yeah. So the chemo wash 
Thankfully, I, I, I guess I say yes, but I can't say too much about it because that is when I was under anesthesia for my surgery. So I don't really know exactly what that entails. And I'll preface this by saying there are some very blurry spots in my story and, and the surgery is one of them because my family was so blindsided. Can you, I mean, can you imagine? so blindsided that while I am having supposed chemo wash and I'm having a debulking, my family is in the waiting room trying to figure out how on earth do we even tell her when she wakes up. So mm. because right, of the like, trauma... Do we, tell her, do we tell her right when she wakes up? Do we wait 15 minutes? Do we let her... Yeah. I mean, There's no rule book day? for this. Oh, no. Exactly. Exactly. So that being said, there was such a huge shock and such an... I mean, just insurmountable amount of trauma that there are conversations I have to say that me and my family have never had because it's just too hard. So from what I understand, though, a chemo wash is kind of exactly what it sounds like. They, in essence, wash your abdominal cavity and your organs with chemo to hopefully kill off any random cancer cells that are within your internal organs or inside your cavity. It's nothing that I, that I experienced while coherent though. (laughs) I'll say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've heard it. I've heard it called a chemo bath as well, where they just take like, what is it? 104 degree uh, chemo. And while you're, while they have you open up, they pour it in and then just tilt you back and forth and just let it get all over the organs. I mean, it's such a, how can I say this? So I was opened up from my sternum right down to my pelvic bone, you know, Uh and Mm -hmm. I was wide open. And the doc took a mechanism that pulled my rib cage apart for my second surgery. Mm -hmm. And yet, I mean, and it sounds like I was, I may have, I'm imagining I may have been opened up more than you, yet as soon as, Let's just pretend that I was. I mean, I don't know. Were you cut from your sternum all the way to oh, I, I can I ask you. You're feeling, right here. <laughs> I have a yeah. I have a feeling we have the same scar. It wasn't to my sternum though. It's about let me look at this. It's about two inches above my belly button. It's a good foot long scar. It's okay. So it's plenty long. I mean, so, you know, yeah. There's not much of me left that wasn't <laughs> split yep. in half. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm on the beach, there's a whole lot of oh yeah, I know, get it. <laughs> leftover marks and scars. Yep. Uh, so yeah, but something about hearing that the body's opened up, there's hot chemo put in, and then they move you back and it just it it just something about it that really just gives me pause and just it's it's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. It seems somehow more invasive than a sur- regular surgery. It yes, I completely agree, and I do liken that to my intraperitoneal chemo. Um, I did have a port, so that is how they, uh, you know, in essence, you know, got the chemo inside my body, two liters, and I, I explain it like flopping around like a fish, and the idea is to coat every side of your insides, every side of your abdomen, and it's just so traumatizing, and it's warm. I do remember that. I had forgotten that part of it, but I do remember the chemo being warm, because my stomach, it didn't necessarily burn, but there was definitely an element of heat to it that I experienced while we were doing this. And I would just flop around for a good three hours or so 
and uh, stand up like a six-month, uh, a woman that's pregnant for about six months and waddle my way out until the next one. It was terrible. <laughs> wow. And how many of these did you have? Six. Remember? You had six of these. Mm -hmm. And so they would put two liters of chemo in your mm -hmm. abdomen, mm -hmm. do... 30 to 45 minutes on your back, 30 to 45 minutes on each side. Yep. And so then I'm, it sounds like then they drain it all back out. Oh, no. Your body okay. then absorbs the two liters of cisplatin and Taxol. So the recovery process from that is not mm. pleasant. Oh. Not pleasant. And so what my chemo regimen was, I, I would go in on, I believe it was a Wednesday. It's, isn't it weird? 12 years later, I still remember this. I would go in <laughs> on a Wednesday and I would have my little fanny pack and they'd fill my fanny pack up with Taxol and I'd have a 24 hour dose of Taxol. And then I would go back in the next morning. And when I went back in the next morning, they would take my little fanny pack and they would start the intraperitoneal chemo. And, um, I would go through that for, I mean, I, I think I was there for probably three hours or so. And then I would have a couple of weeks off and for about five days I would be in bed, immobile, completely immobile. Uh, I remember at one point a friend texting me, and I had to, I know that people listening can't see me, but so what I'm doing is picture me laying down in a bed and I'm holding, you know, how you hold your phone up above your head when you're, when you're looking at your phone. And I was holding my wrist with my other hand so that I could hold my phone up. I was mm -hmm. that weak. I couldn't hold my mm -hmm. phone up with one hand. And uh, so it was pretty brutal for about five days. I basically just slept the whole time. And then it took me another week or so to truly... Uh, I mean, whatever this means, feel like yourself again, whatever that even means at this point. And so yeah. I'd have two good days before I started it all over again for about mm. five, about five months. Oh, that sounds so brutal. It reminds me, mm -hmm. uh, I did a six month post-surgery chemo and a seven month post-surgery chemo, each one following each surgery. Mm -hmm. handful of years apart uh at least those were my longer chemos i did have some pre-surgery chemo with radiation but that's once you put radiation into it it's like you know the experience is so difficult that mm -hmm. i don't really compare it to the two chemos in the beginning you know because it was every two weeks essentially for the second one and every two weeks for the first one yeah i would have good days you know that the uh chemo side effects would mm -hmm would last longer and longer each week. They like get cumulative. Cumulative, and then, you know, for sure. By the, by the last three months of the chemo, it was getting bad. And then for the last couple of months, you know, I would have like what maybe, maybe one good day mm -hmm. before I just go back and do it all again. And that's mm -hmm. such a hard, it, it's such a difficult experience. It, it was interesting for me hearing you say that it brings a lot of thoughts back. I remember thinking, because first off, let me back up, my white blood cell count, I really struggled with that. Uh, mm -hmm. For chemos, probably four, five, and six. I mean, my body obviously was just, 
literally dying inside. And, and this poison clearly uh, was, was incredibly damaging, but, but also incredibly necessary. So I'm thinking back to something that I remember telling my mom at that point when they had to postpone one of my chemos because of my low white blood cell count. And I walked out of uh, my doctor's office just in tears. How can I possibly be upset that I can't get the thing that I'm terrified to get in the first place? Why, how, how is this? How can this be that I am in tears because I can't get chemo today? I should be thrilled that I can't get chemo today, but in my mind, I realized if I can't do this today, I just pushed my finish line out another three weeks. Mm. And so it's so interesting to me. And, and I am, I'm writing a book on my experience right now. And I actually Great. wrote about this a few weeks ago. How can we mourn the thing that we didn't even want in the first place, being the chemo. It was terrible. So, yeah, I mean, I understand that. I understand the cumulative side effects. I understand um, being told you can't get chemo today and that just being devastating. Seems like such an oxymoron, I think. You can't get chemo today. You should be like, yay, I can't get chemo today. It's terrible, though. Yeah, and that's a great question. How can we mourn the thing we didn't even want in the first place? Absolutely. What I'm hearing is you were so committed to going through whatever you had to go through and do whatever it took. And then to have it postponed yeah. was like a slap in the face. Like a failure. And I felt like a failure. How is that possible? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, I'm so grateful that you're willing to say that because yeah. I want people to hear. I want the folks who are listening going through cancer right now or having gone through it to hear that and to mm -hmm. s think to themselves, wow, I've been feeling like a failure for something that happened in my treatment, in my experience, somewhere in my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And we all go through that. Yeah. So many of us do. <clears throat> feel like a failure when your body is being poisoned like every week every two mm -hmm. weeks and, and part of that for me also and and I I'm not denouncing anyone else's diagnosis or anyone else's situation right um what I will say the way I found out and my family found out I had cancer was so there was no doctor calling saying, we need you to come in. So you're like, okay, well, we know that's not good. There was none of that. It was so, We were so blindsided. And I also write in my book that I sure hope it someday will be published. I don't know. This is a work in progress because I have to give myself a lot of breaks with this. It's, yeah. it's hard. Um, but one thing that I've said for 12 years that I, I say a couple of times in my book, it is so hard being the reason everyone around you is trying not to cry. That is such a powerful statement. I experienced it two ways. I experienced exactly that. I don't want to be the person that everyone is crying about and mm -hmm. worried about and already like, you know, grieving the possibility yeah. of the worst outcome. At the same time, 
I would be glad it was me going through it and not them. Oh, 100%. Because I didn't want them to have to go through it. And then, I haven't thought about this in years. And then, feeling terrible that people were crying about what I was going through. There's guilt. Yeah, there's guilt about that. Mm -hmm. Feeling grateful that it's me and not them. And then going back to wishing they weren't having to experience me going through this. Because this is, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. This is my, it's my fault. My family's hurting. Yeah. And then when I will agree to that, but I'll also say that I got to a point where I realized it wasn't my fault, but still it, it was me. Mm -hmm. Did I make a life choice that was, you know, Mm -hmm. that resulted in this and going through all those thoughts and like, you know, it's easy to push those thoughts away and to not want to let them in because it can feel overwhelming. And I found it liberating when I would just sit with those thoughts and not push them away and begin to notice like I didn't create these thoughts. I didn't choose, I'm going to think this now. The thoughts arose and I started to become the observer of the thoughts and separate myself from them because I started realizing these thoughts are absurd. And, you know, I had a lot of training in creating a relationship with my thoughts and recognizing that they weren't mine. And I can... Imagine I may have easily not been able to separate myself from them mm-hmm. had I not had that training. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, you know, it's a real powerful distinction to separate yourself from your thoughts. And just thinking of what you said again, like, like it's my fault that my family is having this experience. And even if you can get past fault, it's like, well, it's well, okay, it's not my fault, but it's my life. And it's all about me. And mm-hmm. I'm taking up so much space in everyone's life. Yeah. And to, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Let's just keep peeling back the onion here for a hot minute. Because yeah. to to add to all of this, as you were saying that, I was thinking now is the time to also bring in another part of, uh, I guess, my narrative. I was actually married to someone else at that mm-hmm. point that um, struggled with addiction and was not strong enough to take care of himself, let alone me. So two weeks after I got released from the hospital, uh, actually his own mother kicked him out of our house and we got divorced (laughs) through the process. Got divorced during treatment. (laughs) So... I mean, let's just have a moment of silence for that girl for a second, right? I mean, yeah. it's, you look back and you think, surely that was somebody else. There's just no way. There's just no way this happened to me. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a challenge. And so my family was mourning a lot more than just the cancer, you know? Uh, and so here I am separated from my husband, 28 years old, I have a diagnosis that not even 30% of women survive. Mm. And I've got to be the strong one here. 
so I don't know how much I actually gave myself the space and the space and the freedom to process it at that point in time. I didn't sit. I had moments when I sat with my feelings because I think sometimes you have no other other choice or you'll just lose your marbles. But mm. I didn't have the knowledge, the understanding, or the time to figure out how to process this and the fact that this wasn't me doing this to the people that loved me. There was no time. This was this was a wake up, oh crap, I've got cancer. He can't hack it. This is where we are. My mom's moving in with me. She leaves her life for six months. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, pun totally intended, do or die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. And no life experience (laughs) to navigate this. You're already having one of the most difficult life experiences with the diagnosis and then bring on one of the next most difficult life experiences, which is to have a divorce. Mm-hmm. The mind it, is just trying to, you know, find her way through it's these self-preservation. circumstances. Self-preservation. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Self-preservation. I remember laying in the hospital bed the day after my surgery and Never said this in public before, so lucky you. <laughs> he, I, well, let me back up to the day of my diagnosis. I knew that this was going to be bad. Like once I woke up and, and we can talk about how I, I figured out I had cancer on my own. My family didn't have to tell me, um, thankfully. But once I realized it and once the anesthesia started wearing off, the only thing I could think of is this is about to get really ugly. Because this person's in this room and he can't handle this. And my family is now here. So for two years, I was able to hide everything quite well. Now everybody's right here together in, let's be honest, the most traumatic, stressful situation a human being can be in. And one of them's an addict. So clearly, like, probably not going to go well. (laughs) And... So I remember asking him, just go home and get some rest. Please go home and get some rest. And I was trying to make it seem like I was concerned about him being tired. That's not the case. I, I, needed, I needed the pressure around me to be released. Hmm. When he came back, he was high, drunk, both, all of the above. Check the boxes. I don't know. And ended up passing out in my room. And was snoring so loudly that the nurses kept coming in because they were concerned about me. And my brother had to kick him out of my room. And he passed out in the waiting room and slept there for the rest of the night. And the next morning came in. I'm laying there. I mean, we have Mm. matching scars, it sounds like. So you know how horrible that was the day after the surgery. He comes and sits next to my bed. And I tell him, listen, this has been about you for years. I can't anymore. This is now finally about me and you have a choice and I need you to decide it right now. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not five minutes from now, right now. Are you in or are you out? Because if you're, if you can't do this, I cannot carry your weight plus mine anymore. This is it. Well, clearly, of course he says he's in and then, you know, (laughs) we can't admit our faults. Right. So, um, yeah, it was terrible. 
And so the weight that I carried and the guilt that I carried, because I come from a family, we do not get divorced. Mm, okay. So we were forced to acknowledge these things during an, you know, during the most traumatic time in our lives. But I'm thankful for that because it gave me the freedom to get out with a family that supported me through the entire situation. And they, 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 they saw for their own two eyes why this was unhealthy for me for multiple reasons. So I'm thankful that it happened the way that it happened because otherwise I may still be in a, a situation that was not deserving of, of me. Yeah, it sounds like your family saw through their beliefs and saw the reality of the situation. They saw what was so, and they got, okay, like, we've held these beliefs very strongly as a family, and now we see that it's not as black and white as this. Like, this is not going to work. They were punched in the face with it. They had no choice but to see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said you figured it out on your yeah. own that you had cancer. I did. Can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So... My surgery was supposed to start at seven o'clock in the morning and they had told me it was going to last no more than an hour and a half. So first off, I'll say what got me here is finally the last doctor that I saw decided to, to do an ultrasound. I went three months without an ultrasound. It's just nauseating when you think about it now, but he, I finally had a doctor that did an ultrasound. There's a mass. Don't worry about it. You're too young. There's no family history. It's not cancer. But at some point, you're going to want to have this removed. And I'm like, okay, what are you doing tomorrow? Because this has got to go. It's not supposed to be there. It's got to go. I don't care if it's benign. I don't care what it is. It's got to go. And so that's what led me there. And that's why it was just going to be a laparoscopic procedure. So um, at any rate, thankfully, they had had me sign a hysterectomy form just in case, you're not going to need this. It's just a legality. But just in case we get in there and we see something else, if you haven't signed this hysterectomy form, we can't do the hysterectomy. Therefore, we have to sew you up, wait six weeks, and you have to come back in mm. and continue on. So thankfully, I had signed that form. So at any rate, I had been told, best case scenario, well, not even best case scenario. This is the way it's going to go because it's not a big deal. An hour to an hour and a half. Surgery started at 7. I woke up in the recovery room and you know, the big digital clocks with like the big digital numbers on them, red digital numbers. Mm -hmm. I opened up my eyes. I kid you not for a split second, but I saw the clock on the wall and it said 1124 long enough for me to think that was way out over an hour and a half. That's not good. And then I was asleep again. I was under again. And I don't know how much longer after that, but at some point after that, I woke up for another just, I mean, instant. But it was long enough for me to hear the nurse dictating next to my bed. And the only words I heard her say were 28-year-old female malignant neoplastic ovaries. Oh my goodness. And I thought, she's talking about me. So that's how I found out. So the next time I woke up, I was being wheeled down the hallway and I'm hearing tears all around me because my, my family known for hours at this point. 
Uh, they just didn't know that I had already figured it out. So I had friends that were there, family that had driven in, and my, my mom and dad were there because they didn't trust my husband at the time to even handle my minor laparoscopic procedure with care. So they had driven in. Um, I was in Dallas at the time. They, I'm from Tyler. They lived in Tyler. So they drove in. I'm so thankful. At the time, I felt like they were helicoptering, right? <laughs> but I'm so thankful that they were there. So they got the troops together. Everyone was driving in. Everyone was there. So I wake up and I hear tears. And I'm, I open my eyes and I'm being wheeled down the hallway. And there are people lying in the halls. But... Uh, or the walls, I should say. And my mom and my dad and my brother are leaning over me and they're patting my head and their tears are falling on my face. Oh my and they're gosh. saying, it's okay, it's okay, we're gonna get through this, it's gonna be okay. And I looked at my dad and I said, Daddy, they took everything, didn't they? And he said, yes, baby, they did. And I said, I have cancer, don't I? And he said, yes, baby, you do. And then I was out again. <laughs> I am lucky. When I say I am lucky that I am not in a straitjacket right now, <laughs> it is the understatement of the century. Like, perfect storm. Total disaster. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. pretty crazy. That's, I'm thinking in my mind about my second diagnosis versus your experience. Because the second time I was diagnosed... <laughs> It was preceded 10 months prior to my wife ending our marriage. Oh my and then a couple months after that, I lost my job. And wow. then a few months later, I moved out of the house with her and the kids. And then a few months after that, I was diagnosed with a stage four metastatic cancer. And I'm like, I just looked up and I was like, you know, I was using uh, Facebook and I was up. Uh, I changed my Facebook name to Job. <laughs> I, was, I was just like, what, it, what is, like, what is this? Yeah. What is this? Like, like you said, self-preservation, yeah. um, survival mode. Like a lot of things just turned off. And uh, in doing this podcast, I've discovered certain things that I never thought about mm -hmm. and never went through because there simply wasn't room. There wasn't enough bandwidth in my mind to, 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 to move through all of it. Not at all. And it's too, I feel like your mind, I mean, well, it's in the, it's in the term itself, self-preservation. Your mind is protecting yourself. And when you are in the thick of it, it is, you are incapable of understanding what that even means, looks like, or, or, or what it means for the rest of your life. What I found, and I'll tell you, I'm 12 years out, and it took me, took me a good eight to nine years before I was really open. I mean, I, I, I never hid from my situation. I just didn't love to talk about it so much because people get twitchy, right? <laughs> they just get weird mm -hmm. about it, especially when you're so young. They just don't know what to do with you and everybody gets awkward. And I didn't, I didn't like that. So it took me a good eight to nine years before I finally started really truly offering my story. And what I found, uh, even though it's hard and writing the book, I'm two years in and my best friend passed away from ovarian cancer almost a year ago, the day after Thanksgiving last year. And so I just had to put everything up for a while and I'm starting back up again. There is healing in transparency. 
but you can't, you don't have the capacity to be transparent about yourself at that age, maybe even at any age, I don't know, when you are going through it. Self-preservation, that wall, it's got to go up. I can't with this anymore. I can't, you know, so it's, it's fight or flight. And, um, and when you're fighting, you don't have time to think, <laughs> I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that brings me back to my telling you that I had been trained in, uh, I guess I'll just say it this way. I was trained in transparency. I did this course. Mm. I did a number of courses that had me recognize that the more I'm willing to tell on myself, the more free I become. Yep. Because then I don't have to hide it and there's no shame around it. And, and you know, I've always loved the Brene Brown TED Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The one oh, where she, she talks to... She's my best friend. She just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I emailed her when I saw it in like 2007 as I'm going through my treatment. And I was like, you know, Brene, like I just saw your TED Talk and like I keep a blog and I'm asking myself every day, you know, there was times I'd write on my blog and it was a public blog. I would write, today what I don't want you to know is mm. because I was so clear that I was freeing myself and I emailed her and it was early enough in her career where she emailed me back and she's like, oh, great. Stop thanks it. so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I love right? her so yeah. much. Oh, she's amazing. And again, like you said, you were 28. I was 36, almost 37. I had like six years of training mm. in looking at my blind spots, looking at the areas of life that I could not see, you know, and many of them are, you know, what we hide from, what we don't want to deal with. And as a result, I kept a blog about my diagnosis and it went from, because so many people were calling me and emailing me that I was like, I'm not going to have a minute to like even do anything. If I'm telling everybody I have sure. tons of friends and, you know, plenty of family. So, I started keeping this blog about how I'm doing. And then I would start talking about how I was doing emotionally, mm -hmm. mentally, spiritually. And then it became like, okay, what am I not willing to tell all of you today? Because I was, I mean, hell, I was hooked on it. I was like, I mean, it was terrifying. Sometimes I'd press publish and be like, I'd look at my wife. We're no longer together, but I'd look at yeah. my wife at that point and be like, I just pressed publish. Oh my gosh. Like I'm, my face is red. But it would free me every time. And then people, what would they say? They would be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for saying that. Like I can, you know, they saw freedom for themselves in that. And this was often, you know, other survivors who were following my blog because it mm -hmm. kind of picked up in a lot of places. Uh, and I say that because it is possible and I want people to hear that. And I'm really clear that when you were, 28 years old and wake up from a you know hour-long laparoscopic surgery and discover that it's been way longer and that you have cancer and as you're waking up and coming to and with your family looking at your husband who you have been secretly supporting in this huge denial about his alcoholism all of that reveals itself and you're 28 years old mm -hmm. again like i had six years of training and i was dealing with my own shame that 
you know, I have a colostomy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's from the first diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I'm keeping this truth-telling, you know, liberating blog. And at one point, I email a bunch of friends. I go, so I'm getting a colostomy. There's no way to avoid it. And so I've created a separate blog to tell all of you because I'm not ready to tell everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, holy, like, huge secret with a ton of people I'm trying to keep. One of my buddies replies, he's like, Bert, what do you what do you mean, man? Like, if you don't tell people, like, who's going to? Yeah. And I just dropped my head, and I was like, oh... <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who is everyone's going to think of poop when they see his thing. You know what I mean? Come on. That's what it was, you know? So, yeah. And and so I went ahead and did it. But you, you were like, hell, you're 28. You're a kid. I was a baby. With, with so much on your plate. And I'm mm -hmm. so grateful that your family got behind you mm -hmm. on the divorce because... Family can get so deeply confronted when another family member gets diagnosed with cancer, like right out of the gates. Mm -hmm. Not everyone deals well. Family members who you thought were going to be there, at least in my experience, don't necessarily show up. Mm -hmm. And then add divorce to that. Yeah. And, and there was probably... I'm not asking you to speak about this, but I'm just thinking freely about like, wow, there must have been not just shame about the cancer, but shame about having a husband who was an addict and the whole thing. And it sounds like you had, it sounds like you have a wonderful family who mm -hmm. was able to see through all of the beliefs and just be with the truth of the situation and get behind you and get him out of there and support their beautiful daughter, 28 years old. With a stage 3C ovarian cancer. Oh, my goodness. I'm very, very thankful. And, I mean, I was then, but again, I didn't realize it as much then because I had other fish to fry. Uh, but looking back, first off, I'd say, I know sometimes this sounds so cliche, but I am thankful for cancer. Because had it not been for that, I would have never left. I would have never gotten divorced. Um, and my family, I would have never let them see what was actually going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was hurting myself throughout this process, for sure. Yeah. I was enabling, but I just, I mean, my gosh, you're not equipped at 28 years old. You're just not equipped. No. And so looking back now, my mom, she dropped her entire life. And she moved up to Dallas and she lived in my spare bedroom mm. and she took care of me. And I'm so thankful for that because had it not been for her, I mean, I had good friends, right? I had good friends, but we are talking, when you were diagnosed, I think you said in 2007, this was a long time ago when cancer wasn't so openly discussed. There, I had just joined Facebook two months prior Okay, right, so right. this was a long time ago. There weren't groups. I mean, and, and I found a blog or two, and all the women just, I remember reading one of the posts and thinking, nope, this is not for me. I can't do it. One of the women said, we all know that every single one of us is going to die from this. It's just a matter of oh when. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, that door's shut. That's not helpful <laughs> now, is it? And so because it was so long ago, your, your circle was different. So, I mean, in some ways it was better, but it was smaller. You couldn't, you couldn't reach these people 
the way that you can now. And so, so much of it, except for my family and ovarian cancer, who even knew what that was 12 years ago? Because I didn't until I nope. was diagnosed with it. So, and they were all, they were all older. They were, I was 28. They were 60 years old. And so for me, there was nowhere to turn except for my family and my friends. And although I know, I know when they left the room, they crumbled, but we held it together as much as you, as much as we could when we were together. And those are the things I'll be honest with you. I don't ask about and I don't talk about because that's where the guilt gets too heavy and too suffocating. What happened mm-hmm. in that room when I walked out of it? It's too hard. You say what happened in that room when you walked out of it? So what I mean by that is let's say that we're watching TV together, my family and I, maybe my friends too. And, and I am just bald and I am sick and they are just there so I'm not alone and they're there to support me. And I get up to go to bed or something. What happens when I leave the room? What conversation is going on? Who's crying? Who's hugging? Who's, oh my gosh. What truth is coming out when, I, when I'm not there? So that was the heavy part for me. Yeah. So we can put on masks. We can definitely mm-hmm. put on masks yeah, when necessary. Absolutely. It is a lot. Like when I went through all of my you know, marriage ending to being diagnosed all within 10 months, I knew that when I, quote, left the room, people were just like, oh, my goodness, like. I can only imagine what I would be saying mm-hmm. about a friend who was going through something like that. And, and what I'm hearing you say is it's just, it's, it's really a tender spot for you. Yeah. Still. It's a part of the book that won't be explained or filled in because I'm not going there. It's mm-hmm. not for me. I, I have learned, I'm 40 now. And I'm happy to say that as you get older, you learn boundaries and you learn who you are and you learn what you'll accept and what you're not going to accept. And, and the list goes on. I am an open book when it comes to my situation and I'm more than willing to, there's really not a question that you can't ask me that I'm not willing to answer. But when it comes to the pain I caused to the people around me, I'm not going there and it's, Number one, because I'm not asking the questions myself because I don't want to hear the answers. I'd like to ask you a question just to understand what you're saying. And sure. If you don't care to answer it, that's fine. Sure. You say the pain you caused. Do you mean in how you navigated a marriage with an addict or are you referring to the diagnosis or are you referring to both? That's a good question. I mean, if I had to choose one, I would say the diagnosis, but let's, let's say to be fair, the diagnosis with a layer of divorce to an addict or with an addict. So I think it's all of it. It's got to be all of it, but even more so it was the diagnosis because with the diagnosis came the fear of 
how much longer do we have? So the pain of losing, yeah, yeah, the pain, the, the pain of the potential for loss on their part, I guess. And you use the words that you caused. Yeah. And I know I didn't. It wasn't my choice, yeah. right? So I know that now. I definitely know that now. Back then, I didn't have time to think about that. I know it now. <laughs> like, forget it. I know it now. I will also, I'll also say, though, like, my mom is the type. As I was writing my book, I asked her, or as I was writing a specific part of my book, I had to ask her some questions because I couldn't remember. Chemo brain is like a legit thing, number one. And it was a long mm -hmm. time ago, and I had a lot on my mind. And her response to me was, oh, honey, I don't remember. It was so traumatizing, and I can't talk about it without crying. And so point being, even now, even now, I cannot really talk to specifically my mom about it because her face crumples and she breaks down mm. into tears. And I get it. And I respect that. Um, so I just, you know, have to choose who I have the conversations with. And so the pain lingers. The guilt lingers because the scars don't go away. I mean, they diminish some. They're not as prevalent. You don't see them as much. They're not as red. But the scars don't go away. And so not only do I question a level of PTSD within myself, I question it for those around me as well. And so I don't think this is the best way to describe it because, you know, I don't want to poke the bear, if you will, <laughs> I guess. I, I don't want to put salt in the wound. I don't, if it, if it works for them to pretend like it didn't happen because it's easier, then I will give them that. And when I need to talk about it, I'll just go elsewhere, you know? Yeah, I uh, have a thought in my mind and I'm going to share it with you. And, you know, again, this is your conversation. So I want sure. to have you be the one guiding it. But I hear two different things. I hear that you still hold on to some responsibility for something that just happened in your body for some unknown reason. Fair. And I also hear that you're clear that there are some family members who don't want to go there. And when you see their face, when you see your mom's face, you're just like, you know, there's nothing in me that wants to continue this conversation because if this is the result, then no, like this is my mom. I don't want to bring her that. But I do you know, go back to what I said the first. I do go back to what I said before that, which is, yeah, it's a, it sounds like there's still some responsibility on your part. You you hold for the diagnosis, though. Of course, the mind, the logical mind knows it's not your responsibility, mm. and that's still there for you. And I love that you shared that because people think that when the cancer's over and when we're healthy and we're feeling fine, okay, back to normal, everyone mm. back to work. It's like no, like twelve years out, and you're still sorting out the thinking that didn't have time to be processed. 
that you know isn't logical and is still there because mm -hmm. it was so traumatic. Yep. That's the result of trauma. And I'm, I'm not, you know, someone, it's not my field, you know, it's not really have any authority on that, but I can certainly hear it in your speaking. And so mm -hmm. I thank you because I, again, it's so important to me that people hear about what it's like post treatment. <laughs> You're cancer free. Everything's fine now. Uh, actually, I'm rebuilding and recreating my life like moment by moment and 12 years out, I'm still doing that. And I am what? Surgery was in 2011, so I'm going to be nine years out in a few days, in a week. Mm. It, it, it doesn't mean that we've resolved these things. They come up all the time. I, I learned in a podcast months ago that I hadn't forgiven my doctor for misdiagnosing me four times. Mm. Now, I'm not saying anyone, if you're listening right now, you don't have to forgive your doctor for misdiagnosing <laughs> you, and I wouldn't tell you you do. Just for me, it was important for me. And I realized I hadn't. We're constantly seeing new things. And so you're just, you know, shedding some light on the reality of the trauma of it all. And so I thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, I, I have forgiven my ex-husband. I've forgiven my doctors. It's funny that you mentioned that because I do talk about that as well in my writing. And I've decided it's time to forgive myself. Yes. Why do we not give ourselves the same grace that we give and offer to everyone else? And yes. so, again, I, I want to scream it from the rooftops. There, there is healing in transparency. And um, I'm seeing that. And we all have to go about it our own way because... There's no rule book for this. And so I have immersed myself back into specifically the ovarian cancer community. And it's hard because specifically most women at my stage, well, let me back up. Most women are diagnosed at my stage. And I believe, good gracious, the statistic at this point is... Um, Wow, 70 to 80% of us will have a recurrence. Mm. And once you have that recurrence, your survival rates plummet. And okay. so there is also, there was fear of immersing myself back into that because it's reopening the scar over and over and over again and making relationships and fostering relationships and those people literally passing away. And yeah. so there, there is just, it's so convoluted. It's such a challenging thing to navigate. And I'm s learning to give myself grace the same as I would give to anybody else. So with that comes boundaries. With that comes knowing when I've talked about it enough, knowing when I've met one of these women for coffee and I start to feel that panic rise from my toes up to my stomach and okay now it's in my throat I want to turn and run it's time to say I'm so glad we met thank you so much I've got a I've got somewhere I gotta be <laughs> you know yeah and give your time but respect yourself with your time 
and respect your boundaries and your own health. And so that's that's a work in progress. I'm 12 years out and I still do not know what I'm doing with that, but all I know is that I'm trying. And I also know I am doing a disservice to the women out there that message me daily that are literally dying for hope. And who am I to withhold that? I have the gift they're begging for. Who am I to withhold that? So I've got to get over me. I've got to get over this to, to provide healing and hope to a world that needs it. And the only way I can do that is to forgive myself and give myself grace. So we're working on it. We're getting there. For those of you who are listening, when Mandy said she was going to forgive herself, I threw my fists in the air. It's so (laughs) wonderful to hear. And it's clear that you're going to be there. Yeah, I think so. Your awareness that there is a gap between who you are now and who you're committed to being, to me, that's the piece. Yeah. You're, you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to happen. And you're like, I don't know. It sounds like what I'm hearing you say is I don't know what it's going to be to forgive myself, but I'm mm-hmm. on that path and it's going to happen. I got really clear only maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, that I didn't design me. Mm, I like and that. that yeah, I have been judging myself for who I am and how I show up in the world. Like I've said this before, I'm like a 1970 Sedan DeVille Cadillac. One of the fenders is rusty. One of the headlights blinks a lot. The wipers aren't that great, and the muffler's kind of noisy, and there's a wheel in the back that's doing something that I don't know how long it's going to hold <laughs> out. I didn't design that, but it's, it's who I am. I have faults. I have strengths. I say the 1970s Sandville Cadillacs. I love those old Cadillacs. <laughs> but it's been around for a while. And like, I love who I am and I get that I have faults. And about a year ago, I stopped judging myself for who I am because I woke up one day and I was me. Like, I didn't design this. I do have to be responsible for how I operate. And as a human, naturally, I mess up now and again with people. And I have to own it. And that can be a kick in the gut. (laughs) But how can I judge something I didn't create? That's so valid. It was, and it's, and for me, that's what like loving myself was. Like I was wondering, what does that mean? How do I do that? I don't even know what that is. And it's really what you're saying is forgiving myself for being flawed like and and then you say that and you go forgive myself for being flawed like that's crazy like how could i even why would you even forgive yourself it's like giving up the judgment for being flawed it's uh and i don't feel like you know i'm like fully there i don't know if the process of awareness and insight ever stops you know I don't think it should. When my life is over, then I'll let you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then on that last breath, we'll talk about it. Yeah. 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 So giving yourself grace and, and in that, like you said, when you're speaking with others and the anxiety is coming up, it's giving yourself permission to not have to participate. Sure. Yeah. I'm not going to do this. This doesn't serve me. And I got to take care of me. Mm. And you know we. Mm. 
I'm open with people about that as well. I wasn't at first. I ignored it and I didn't honor myself at first. So I would be in a situation with that with, with a woman just desperately seeking life from me and therefore sometimes sucking the life right out of me. It was, it was hard and I would just let them do it and I'd let them pick and I'd let them pick and I'd let them pick because I honored their needs over my own. And it drained my life force. And so what I do now, and I felt guilty about that. And I guess the older that I got and the more experience that I got with this, the more I realized, no, no, the only way I can continue to help other people is if I help myself and I keep myself healthy and I keep myself in a position in which I am willing. And the only way to do that is to create healthy boundaries. So quite often before I am asked to meet with one of these women or before they ask, can we go grab coffee or, you know, whatever, or they're just messaging me, I'll set the precedence. I'm more than happy to just know that I respect myself first. And if I have, if I'm having a moment when I just can't, don't get offended if I don't respond immediately. Don't get offended if I have to take a break from the conversation. And of course, they understand that wholeheartedly. It was me not giving that grace to myself. And now that I've done that, I find myself more and more willing to give and to offer and to share mm. and to show because I'm being healthy about it and I'm being smart about it. And it's changed everything. And that's with women who've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer that want to talk with you? It is. It's also, um, I, I will get women messaging me specifically on Instagram, which I just kind of started using Instagram about a year ago and I just don't get it. I'm, I think I'm just too old for this stuff right now. But, but anyway, mm. these women will find me that I, that, I mean, one is in, in Australia. She messaged me the other day and they, a lot of women will message me saying, I have all the signs. I'm terrified that I have ovarian cancer. What do I do? And so there's also this very thin line that you have to toe between they want your medical advice at which you are not qualified to give. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very upfront and honest with that. And, and I also am very clear about the fact that ovarian cancer is, I wasn't even textbook in my diagnosis, even though looking back, I did have some of the symptoms and, and should have been diagnosed appropriately, but none of us really ever are. I, I wasn't clear cut. No one is really clear cut with this. You have to get second opinions, third opinions, and so on and so forth. And I hesitate to tell you anything more than my own experience because I refuse to carry the weight of a potential diagnosis that was delayed on my shoulders. Beautiful. I can't do that. This, is, this has got to be you. I'm more than willing to answer your questions by all means. But I'll have people ask me, you know... My doctor wants to do a biopsy. What are they going to biopsy? Well, I mean, I don't know. Ask your doctor. <laughs> I mean, Ask really? So, so you, you're like, what, what kind of, what kind of supplements do you take? Well, I take the supplements that are right for me and my body, which won't be right for yours. What kind of diet are you on? And all of these things. And so, something else I've also discovered down this path is. When you're a cancer survivor that's willing to tell your story, maybe maybe if, even if you're not, I, I don't know, you are put on a pedestal. And all of a sudden, you're this 
all-knowing being that has all the answers. No, thank right? you. <laughs> and, oh, some of the questions I've been asked, I'm like, that has nothing to do with cancer or, or anything of the sort. But for some reason, you think I know. Uh, it's, it has been an interesting, interesting journey. So I've learned, I used to, I used to think boundaries were rude. And I don't anymore. I think the lack of boundaries is is detrimental, not only to me, but the person I'm not setting them with. So work in progress there as well. But uh, I'm more open to the opportunity of sharing because I'm respecting my needs first. Yeah, it sounds like there's freedom for you in sharing because you know when to draw the boundary. Oh, yeah. Mm. Wonderful, yeah. Hmm. It is... A simple response on my part when people ask, what should I do? I say, I recommend everyone get a second and third opinion. 100%. And if you can, go to a cancer hospital because they don't follow the standard of care. They will actually be doing the most current, advanced procedures and processes. And other yeah. than that, there's nothing more for me to say it you bring me back to something like saying now and way before in 2008 there were very few cancer social media groups and there was one called planet cancer and it was red white and black as far as the colors of the page and it was like yeah like w like yikes it was so like scary looking aggressive and <laughs> yeah and i was going through one of my Diagnosis, the first one back then. And that's where I met one of the uh, guests on the podcast because yeah. he, was, he was on there as well. He's such an inspiring guy. And uh, the guy I mentioned earlier when we were uh, talking before we got on. And he was an inspiring and exciting person to have in uh, you know conversation. However, a lot of people had these feeds that were you know they were going through really difficult diagnoses and you could read and feel and just pick up on the fear and the upset about the diagnosis and I finally stopped going on planet cancer because I got really clear early on and I feel blessed with it I got really clear early on that if I'm going to die because I might, I'm going to live my life truest, fullest expression of me. And for me, that really means, you know, my relationships with others were going to be honest and loving and forgiving. <coughs> and I did my best and I failed plenty, but <laughs> that's where I chose to come from. And the pages became so difficult to read and you could sense, at least, you know, get the idea that some of these folks really no matter what they asked for, they just wanted more, like, you know, just sucking energy from people, as you said. I literally got back on social media in a cancer group this week mm, since wow. 2008 yeah. because it was too much for me because I would find myself holding the weight of their diagnosis with them just as I read their one post and not recognizing or may I say where I found my freedom in reconnecting with people going through some really difficult diagnoses 
I remind myself, if I didn't sign up on this page and I didn't see their post, they're going to be going through it the way they're going through it. I am not the saving grace. I'm not going to say something that's going to change everything for them. And I don't have to carry it when it just breaks my heart what I'm reading. You know, I have three kids. There's a fifth time I had cancer and my husband just left me. Like, you know, just things that are just like, what? Yeah. It's, it's devastating. And it's, or may I say, it's devastating if I allow myself to carry that. And now I just get like, there are people going through all kinds of traumatic things on this planet and you know my heart can break for them with love but i don't need to carry it and so now i can go onto these pages and i find places where i can be supportive and some people appreciate it and you know one woman just said yesterday like thank you so much for saying that okay now i'm back on my feet she just mm. needed a you know yeah. reality check you know like you're you're a warrior with what you're going through few people ever go through what you're going through and you're a warrior and you got this far and you're going to continue. But it was a boundary within myself that or I had to I had to be honest with myself about this completely unrealistic belief that I couldn't even see that I had about the comments that I would leave for others. Like, oh my gosh, look at your expectation of your comment. Like, you want to resolve this person's pain and trauma. Hey, Bert, likely never going to happen. So now, mm -hmm. look at it newly. Okay, I can speak to this person. I can support, the, I can be supportive. And they'll do with it what they will. I mean, most people don't even listen to advice. And then people get all upset they don't listen to your advice. It's like, really? Why don't you, know, you get old enough, you're like, oh, of course, people don't listen to advice. It's not unique. It's not personal to me. It's not that I didn't communicate. It's that human beings just don't really listen to advice. <laughs> Unless it's exactly the advice that they were wanting to hear. You know, we pick and choose. <laughs> Bingo, because we're actually looking for someone to... Validation. Validate. Yeah. 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 And so good for you for seeing that you needed to take care of yourself first before you could be a support to others. It's like and put your oxygen mask on first before bingo. helping the person next to you. Yeah. That's the one. Put your oxygen yeah. mask on first before you can, you know, help yeah. the kid or the person next to you. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. That's what I like about writing as well, because this thing may never go anywhere. I may be the only one to read it except for the people that, I send it to you to help me edit. I, I, I don't know. And I would love for it to, but that's irrelevant. It's not the point. The point is I'm getting out energy that's been pent up for years. Uh, I'm getting out pain that's been pent up for years. And I'm doing it with control. I write the rules in this book. Because it's me and only me that's doing it. And so this has given me the practice that I need to determine, huh, where am I willing to go with an actual human person that I'm talking to? What mm -hmm. are the things that are easy for me to type out? What are the things that really kind of make me, oh, tighten up as I'm typing them and I have to say, nope, nope, got to walk away. So it helps me sort out my pain points so that I can pick and choose for myself the healthiest point of discourse when I am with 
these women or, or with you even really, mm-hmm. you know, I, I yeah. I'm able to navigate this in a much healthier way. Yeah. It sounds like the writing allows you to return to the experience and then distinguish if it's a place you can go or how far into it you can go today. Oh, sure. I mean, let's be honest. I'm jumping back into a dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I am diving in head first. But at a minimum, it's helping me sort a lot of things out. Yeah, absolutely. I am someone who gets a lot out of uh, working with spiritual teachers, going on silent retreats, uh, you know, doing seminars about, you know, looking at ourselves. I love working with therapists. As you likely know, I'm a life coach and Mm -hmm. I have a fellow coach from 2010 from the class we graduated in. And she and I still coach each other every other week. Like I immerse myself in looking at my stuff and looking at my barriers so I can know where, so I can see what is ahead of me that is untouched. You know, what, what closet doors have been nailed shut and then have a wardrobe thrown in front of them so I don't <laughs> even see them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what ones are there for me to step into? It's, It's so important to me, and it's also so valuable to go at the pace that works for me. My wife mm-hmm. and I split up, and you know, she told me that our, she was done being married to me in 2010. And it wasn't until about 2015 that we were actually able to start talking about that. Mm. And started to be honest about how difficult it was for both of us and where we didn't have the strength or or the skills or the awareness to part in a healthy way. And it's now 2020 and we're close and we're friends and we'll have dinner together with the whole family and oh, I adore great. her and I love her like I loved her before we started, when we first started dating, you know, before wow. we got married and everything went crazy. But it takes... speak for me an I statement it took me years to get where I am now it took so much forgiveness of self so much willingness to not hold expectations of myself and just to be with where I am and we live in a culture that just says you know if you can't handle it you know you know just do it you can handle it mm-hmm. and, and it just pushes us to to be some kind of incredibly strong independent powerful being versus be human yeah and allow ourselves the space to be exactly who we are i mean talking about you know forgiveness of self and you know giving Mm -hmm. yourself grace and loving ourselves like for me it i mean yes there was like a huge aha but that aha was just like a like a watershed moment where my trajectory just shifted, where it just became a 
okay, so this is what this is like, and it mm-hmm. didn't all happen at once, and it's, it's just a, it's an ongoing process, and you have defined where you, you've, you've defined where you're free, where the limitations are, and the writing of your book is making it clearer for you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it's giving you some insight into your own thinking, into, into the areas where the emotions are, uh, okay, those emotions have not been experienced in <laughs> years. Okay, th- there's a tender spot. Yeah. I, I, I love that you do that. It's, uh, it's, Thank you. You're welcome. It's, it's so, like you said, will the book be published? Don't know. But right now, the writing is happening, mm-hmm. and it's providing you something. And it sounds like you can see, or I'm, I can hear, you can see that it would benefit others. Well, you're, and I was not just even there thinking, yet, though. No, no. Well, I don't know. And I'll tell you why. As you were saying this, I was thinking, yes, yes. And this, everything you're saying, there's a reason that it's so important to share that with others. Because when you share your freedom, slash boundaries, slash healing slash whatever it is you're going through in that moment in time, when you share it with the world, you give them the freedom and the okay to do it themselves. Yes. So the cycle continues. And typically we say the cycle continues and and that sounds so negative, but that's a negative saying. This is a positive cycle continuing. I, I show you my healing through freedom, through openness, through, transparency, whatever it is. And therefore I'm giving you the okay to do it for yourself. So although clearly you don't really write a book, not hoping it won't get, I mean, hoping it won't get published. I mean, there's kind of an end (laughs) goal here, right? But for me, there are so many, I could go down so many different paths to lead me to so many different goals. Right now, the purpose of this is self-healing and transparency of self for myself. I found within that though, it's shifting me and it's changing me and I'm sharing myself with other people already that don't even know I'm doing this yet. And it's giving them freedom. And it's giving them approval to do it for themselves. So I think that's something that that we can't ignore every aspect of us, every moment of us outwardly, outwardly reaches to other people. And, and, and there's this ripple effect and this, this tide that we can, that we bring with us that... Maybe my end result is not a published book, but I still did the work and I offered it. I offered my shift to others who then hopefully can do the same. And, and you know, and then the cycle continues and we'll say that in a positive, uplifting way. Yeah. So that's the goal. So are you <laughs> saying that the work that you're doing in writing your book now, whether or not it gets published, has you grow as a person so that who you're available to now it's already affecting those folks it's already allowing you to be available to people in ways you previously hadn't been so if the book gets published or not okay but you're growing in such a way that you can be an inspiration a 
a um, an inspiration for others to tell the same truth about themselves and to have mm-hmm. the same insights and the same freedom that's available. Yeah. When we stop hiding who we are, when we stop, uh, and I, I just limited the whole conversation by saying stop hiding who we are. Just you know, the more open and honest we are willing to be with others the more they have the opportunity to do the same of course you open up that freedom within themselves and what's the saying it's not um oh gosh i'm telling you chemo brain it does not go away it's not (laughs) about the it's not about the finish line or the end result or whatever it's about the journey i mean there are multiple ways that we've heard that being said it's not about the end result it's about the journey and i'm very goal oriented so i'm like yeah 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 okay (laughs) (laughs) whatever. But there is so much truth to that. There's so much truth to that because my end result would be published, right? I'm published. Okay, cool. But if I rushed through this, let's just say hypothetically, I rushed through this and I get published. The work wasn't done in a manner and in a capacity in which I needed it to be done. So there is something to be said for enjoy the process, live through the process, breathe through the process, take your time because it is more about that than the end result. And so that's where I am right now. I mean, not only with writing, but just with this whole, this whole journey. And I've had hiccups along the way. I think I mentioned earlier, um, one of my best friends passed away a year ago from Mm. ovarian cancer. And that, that caused a shift for me. And so I've, I've been forced to figure out, I've got two ways I can go with this. Do I give myself grace or do I bury myself for a little bit? And so it's definitely been a learning process for sure. But I can say sitting here right now, I've seen the benefit and I, what on earth is the end result in my life anyway? I mean, I, who knows, but it is about this middle part that's really helping me to breathe and allowing me the space to breathe. And so for that, I'm really, really thankful. Yeah, the awareness that yeah. where I am right now is as important, if not or more important than the end goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm so at that place in my life right now, like I tend to not step into projects if I can't see the end goal (laughs) that has limited me for my whole life. And around the time that I declared that I was creating this podcast, I started having this vision of what it was going to be and what it would become. And I was blessed with the insight that I have no idea where this podcast is going. I have no idea where I will be a year from now or five years from now. You know, this podcast may just be a stepping stone in where I go next. Mm -hmm. And that's not my intention. I'm putting my heart and soul into this podcast and all my time and energy into making this happen with the awareness that I don't know why it's here. Mm Mm-hmm other than to simply do it right now. There was another book uh, that I loved written by a couple of books that come to mind. One is, I don't read so much as I listen constantly. I listen to audiobooks, And there was a book 
is a book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've listened to that book three times. Mm. She is writing all about being a creative person, really writing about just expressing ourselves in our life and just express and don't worry about the end result. She leaves no stone unturned as far mm. as what stops us from going forward. I mean, it's one of the most valuable books I've ever I'm writing uh, it down right now. To. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one that I love listening to, it's a much shorter book. It's actually by Oprah, and it's called The Path Made Clear, and she has all kinds of teachers and authors who, you know, what I got from it, was teachers and authors who are saying, I don't know where my work is going. I didn't know where it was going. I thought I knew where it was going. It didn't go that direction at mm -hmm. all. And what there was simply to do was just to be and to express. And if one writes, then to write. If one paints, then to paint. If one podcasts, then to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but just do and be and don't worry about the end result. And yeah. that somehow struck a chord for me so deeply that I'm able to go into this and put it into the world. And I will, would imagine there are going to be episodes where folks are going to say, you said this. Like, why did you say that? And I'll go, huh, yeah, Th throw that one out. That was no good. There, there's a disclaimer on this podcast. It says, I am not a medical uh, practici <laughs> yeah. medical uh, practitioner, and neither is the guest. Yeah. And we are just chatting. We're just mm -hmm. talking. Because it's about our experience and what and what it provided us and the awareness that it brought to us. And I also want sure. people to know, you know the ins and outs of the experience. So, yeah, I don't... I don't know where this is going. I don't know where it's going to land... And uh, it's just putting it out there. And, and goodness. Awesome. Like, yeah, thank you. And like you writing your book, it's the same for me. You are the, let's see, you are the 23rd guest I've spoken to. Oh, wow. And whenever I say stuff like that, it always throws people because they're like, well, I'm listening to this and it's podcast number 12. And I'm like, yep, well, yeah. because whatever. <laughs> I don't put them in order. You know, you got to mix them up. I spoke to, you know, seven different women who had breast cancer. And I was like, huh, wow. I'm not going to put all of those in the same season because that would just be like... I want, I want to mix it up. I want to hear yeah. different experiences. But, yeah. It's, this is the 23rd episode, and I have learned so much. I feel so lucky, so fortunate to speak with each one of you and have these intimate conversations about this profoundly difficult experience we go mm -hmm. through and how each one of us found our way. Mm -hmm. So you are writing this book, and you're aware of the fact that who it's actually creating you to be in the world is as much a part of the process as writing the actual book. Sure. So that's inspiring. And I so look forward to the book. I so I I selfishly <laughs> hope it does get published because oh, you man. you're so transparent about where you are in the process and as well as you know what the experience was like for you and there's as we've discussed there's so much value in that it'll be such a gift to everyone who reads it it's been yeah yeah thank you for saying that it's there's so much value in it not only for me but i i do think that it truly could be of benefit 
to those that hopefully, you know, it lands in their hands at some point. So here's hoping I'm taking a course on uh, publishing right now. And it's, whew, I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a long road to hoe, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It's I've worth thought, it. Yeah, yes, I bet <laughs> it's worth it. I've thought about writing a book, especially when I had my blog. And I just got really clear, like, it isn't the time. And there may never be a time for a book, you know? I mean, right mm -hmm. now I'm doing this podcast. I have done more research and more study and reached out for more tech support in so many aspects of recording and editing and Zooming. And, you know, I've done, you know, gosh, what, 19 years of coaching to get myself to a place where I feel confident in who I am in having discussions with guests. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So why do I say all that? Because the thought of writing a book to me is, I would say, daunting. But I think terrifying and perhaps like suffocating would be far more <laughs> valid, valid description of, of, of how it feels for me. So maybe I yeah. will learn from those of you who are writing and who publish, you know, <laughs> what am I envisioning in my mind? What is my imagination bringing to this thought process and experience that's completely <laughs> suffocating me because it's clearly not helping. But right now, Manny, yeah. I'm not interested. I'm not even looking there. <laughs> I'm <having> busy. <laughs> hey, no, no judgment. No judgment at all. <laughs> <laughs> so... I want to go back. You had okay. said that you had the surgery mm -hmm. and they did a chemo wash, chemo bath while they had you open on the table. Mm -hmm. And then you went and had your intraperitoneal chemo. Correct. And you also had the systemic chemo through mm -hmm. the port up by your clavicle. Mm -hmm. How long was that? whole process so I was diagnosed February 13th and my last chemo was July 13th so right at five months what has been the process for your post-treatment scans blood work follow-ups yeah so I started out with follow-ups every three months and I did have a couple of scans, but we opted out of those based on my oncologist's opinion. They weren't proving to prolong lifespan and drinking the barium and all of those things. It's just, you know, it's quite uncomfortable for a patient. And so he had said early on, we're going to go, we're going to travel this road based off of your complaints or lack thereof what you're experiencing, so basically case history and a physical exam and a blood test. So in terms of the blood test, it's called a CA-125. That is a blood marker for ovarian cancer. So just to be clear, I'm backtracking quite a bit here, but it is really important to note there are no screenings for ovarian cancer. There are none. So when a woman goes in for her annual well woman visit and, you know, you get your pap smear and, and you get your exam and you leave and you think, you know, when you get your results, everything's clear. Yay. You are not being tested for every type of female gynecological cancer that you could potentially have. So there's no screening for ovarian cancer. Now, a CA-125 
is a pretty reliable marker for a number of us, but it's not reliable for everyone because those numbers will fluctuate based on inflammation and other things going on in your body. For me, it's a reliable marker. So because of that, we go off the CA-125, I have a physical exam. For, hmm, it's so wonderful that I'm so far past this and I'm having trouble remembering how long I did that. That's always a nice reminder, oh wait, you did survive because we're so far out that some of these memories are blurry and that's really cool memory. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I mm -hmm. went every three months for, gosh, a couple of years, I guess. And then we pushed it out to every four months and then it was every six months for a year or so. And then it was annual. And my doctor told me when I... Actually, I guess it was at my five year. He said, you don't have to keep coming anymore. And I was like, mm, probably going to keep coming. See you next year. <laughs> and here I am in 12 years and I still have my appointment in May and will continue to do so for quite a while. Once you make it to the five year mark, you are, and I'm using the air quotes again, considered cancer free. There is no cure for ovarian cancer though. So the term is, is used loosely uh, it, it, in essence, what it means is your, your potential for recurrence significantly drops once you reach five, reach five years. Now, that being said, I do have a friend here in Austin that was 11 years post-diagnosis with no recurrence, which again, with ovarian cancer is very rare because most of the time, by the time it's diagnosed, it's metastasized. So recurrences are more prevalent. So she was diagnosed at stage 3C, the same as me. She's 11 years out and just now is experiencing her first recurrence. So you're never released from the chains of this. So when my doctor said, you don't have to keep coming, I was like, yeah, pretty confident when I'm, you know, old and gray, I'm still going to be coming in here and we're going to make sure that everything's okay because it's just, it's a never ending process. And it's almost like, it's almost like you've got one of those big, you know, like you see the cartoons with the cartoon character that's got the shackle around his ankle with the big metal ball thing or whatever. Cancer is the big metal ball and you, you take it with you wherever you go. And although I'm, I can say I'm, I'm thankful, I'm thankful that I have found ways to pick up that ball and carry it with me and actually sometimes use it to my benefit because it has helped me grow. Uh, it's always there. It's always going to be there. So at this point, this is my, my long winded answer to tell you that I will forever go in annually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I get a scan every year huh. now. It, I don't remember when it went to once a year. I get a CT scan and I drink the yeah. barium and the whole thing. And I responded kind of badly. I had a tingly mm. sensation in my mouth and got a little lightheaded from the contrast. So now they give me pre-meds of prednisone and Benadryl and that stuff just whacks yep. me out. And then I drink the barium and I get the scan. And I'm thinking to myself like, now, how healthy is this for mm. my body? I had no markers the first time I was diagnosed, no markers in my blood. The second time, there was an increase in markers 
but there were simply were markers along with a scan that showed, you know, a recurrence, mm -hmm. which is what it was. But, you know, so now I have these scans and my doc said, you know, now that you've been five years with no detectable sign, if you get a recurrence, it's just going to be because you're a person who got cancer. And I think that, you know, because of all the CT scans I've had and all the chemotherapy I've done, like I've done, like, gosh, maybe, I don't know, 18 months oh of chemo gosh. total, give or take a few. Yeah, so like I can't imagine that's great for my body. And I'm actually looking into a little more, you know, uh, a little more intention than I have in the past to what it's going to take to get that out of my body because, you know, I... I've had a mild cold, and I have it right now. And today is day mm. nine. Like, people get a cold for three days, I yeah. get it for 10. People get a bad cold for five days, I have it for 15. I had the flu in January, and it lasted 26 days. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's absurd the way my immune system doesn't, it's absurd how my immune system seems to have never bounced back from all the mm. treatments. So I've think you know if i were to have a recurrence there's a possibility it's going to just be from all the damn yeah, chemo <laughs> I had in my body but i i can relate to what you're saying they said at some point i remember a doctor telling me the first time at some point you know we're not going to keep scanning you because heck you can scan a body if you scanned every person once a year you'd find things you know the body they grows cysts and it grows tumors and then it removes them and it does its work and it's doing just fine People get cancer in their body, and their body gets rid of it. it that's, it's for those of us who it shows up in our body, and our body doesn't get rid of it. So I said, we can't scan everybody, and we're not going to scan you forever. And the idea of no longer having scans with barium and contrast and prednisone and Benadryl, that sounds yeah. wonderful. And if my doc ever says, okay, well, you're good. You don't need to come back anymore. I'm going to be like, uh, Hold the phone. Well, <laughs> I don't know how I am with yeah. that, and uh, and I and I can also see, you know, a life without annual mm -hmm. scans. My just my last scan in December, I was having pain around my liver, and every year the nurse practitioner has me lay on the exam table after my scan before I see my doc, and she presses over my liver and asked me to take a deep breath, and she did, and it hurt. She said, okay, I'll let the doctor know. And Maddie, in the 10 minutes from when she did that and I saw my doc, I had already oh, mapped yeah. out how I was going to work every other work. I had mapped out how I was going to work you know, every other week with the chemo and how I was going to get through this and pay my bills and raise the kids. And doc comes in and goes, you're fine. It's just some physical thing that I had. And, you know, because I have a colostomy and it's a permanent uh, hernia because, you know, the large intestine goes through the abdominal wall, you know, I have, you know, uh, some back issues that I've been working on lately and, you know, um, discomfort in my body because my muscles are compensating. I'm now going to a pelvic floor <gasps> Me too. Therapist. I just started. Yes. <laughs> I just started two months ago. Me too. Why don't they tell you about this stuff earlier? I had no oh, idea. My. It's changing my world. <laughs> I just went yesterday. I love her. Me. <laughs> Fabulous. Me yeah. too. 
Me too. I just started a couple of months ago. It's changing my world. She pointed out how my pelvis and pelvic floor seem to be in contraction. Like they're still responding to the surgeries mm -hmm. I've had. I've had two. They've opened me up yeah. twice. And you know, I'm doing these very simple stretches. And I'm noticing how it's stretching my abdomen. Like It's bringing me back to when I would stand up three months after my surgery and I would have to stand up off the couch and then slowly bend yeah. my torso up and at the rate in which the tight healing muscles would mm -hmm. allow me to expand and open my body and eventually yeah. stand up I couldn't go at my own speed and I'm stretching those muscles right now and since I started She's given me a number of different exercises, but since I started this, it's kind of like a lunge. You get on one knee and then have you, you know, have you, you bend your knee and then put your other knee on the floor, kind of like, a, and then you, you you tuck your pelvis in, and then lean forward, and it causes. Oh, it's the, a hip flexor stretch. Muscles. It sounds like. And and the, and yeah, that okay. too, yeah, and it goes up yeah. in my abdomen. My back pain. I've been waking up with back pain every day and then after an hour or so I'm finally good well that's been reduced yeah. since I started mm -hmm. these stretches and just like you said I'm like how did nobody have me immediately or maybe not immediately go but not have me in the queue to begin pelvic and pelvic floor work I've spoken to guys who've got, got, had prostate mm -hmm. cancer and you know they have to you know, rebuild their pelvis and get pelvic floor work done and so much more. And it's like the doctors treat us for our mm -hmm. diagnosis. And then they say, okay, we're good. And you say, well, what about this? What about that? Well, you can go see your primary or I can send you to a nutritionist. And, you know, if you, if, you, know, you can hear the little bit of tone in my mm -hmm. voice right now. And I'll put that aside and say they're in sure. their field. It's, it's an upset I have about the entire medical design for cancer that there we are still currently we're only beginning to have post-treatment survivorship mm -hmm. medicine it's brand new it's not out there and people like you and me years out going oh i'm now getting treated for an issue that i have which is a direct result of what i went through over a decade ago 100 percent I just went on a tear, so no, thank you for letting no, me. But you were like, preaching oh to the choir. Goodness. I get it. Where were <laughs> these people 12 years ago? Why didn't we talk about this? No nutritional guidance, no, no mental or emotional guidance either. I mean, I just, let's just, I mean, and I am so thankful for my oncologist. Let's just go ahead and make that clear right now. I am so thankful. Absolutely. I just, mm -hmm. I, um, I felt like, what is the cheese that has a whole Swiss cheese, whatever, like, I came out of it like that. What about these other gaps? We got to fill in. I mean, what about all this pain, this back pain, my hip flexor pain? What am I supposed to eat? I, you know, how can I handle the emotional side of this? His focus was to save my life, period. I'm cool with that. There needs to be a team approach because... It's great if my life is saved, but if I am so physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, damaged, then I'm still not a whole person. And so there are moments when I get really aggravated when I find out about something like pelvic floor therapy. Never heard of it 
until like a year or two ago. And I find out, oh, well, women that have hysterectomies are more likely for their bladders to prolapse. You really probably should have started doing this a long time ago. And I'm like, who's the person that was going to tell me that? I mean, you know, so the, the guidance is minimal at best. And I understand that. Um, but that's why I'm so thankful that in this world that we're in now, people who are newly diagnosed have more access to more information like you, like the podcast, like the Facebook groups, like people on Instagram, like me, so that they can get a little bit more guidance. I was just floating like a leaf in the wind, just not sure where I was going to land. And it made it challenging. So I have had moments of frustration, even now, thinking, where was the person that should have told me that? I had no idea. I get it. It's so, it can be so mm -hmm. frustrating. I will say about my oncologist, she's wonderful. When I told her about, you know, she asked me about a supplement I was taking. And she said, you know, why are you taking saw palmetto? I say, yeah, because sometimes when I pee, it's, I think I'm done. And all of a sudden I'm not done. And then she's like, you're too young for that. I want you to go see a urologist. And then I want you to let me know what happens and have them send me the report. And so, you know, two weeks later, I'm putting it off and not wanting to go do more doctor's appointments. I got a call from her office. Hi there, uh, Mr. Scholl. Dr. Kemeny asked me to call and ask if you had seen your urologist yet. Like, no oncologist I've ever worked with, and I've worked with like four of them, has ever followed up like her and taken on the whole case. Yeah and followed up and wanted to make sure that I was looking at these other things that she was very clear weren't cancer, but were something that needed to be dealt with. And even that said, as fantastic as she is and as grateful as I am, there's no one saying, okay, great, your treatment's over. Now we need to treat you for the treatment. Uh -huh. We poisoned you for seven months. And now we need to rehabilitate your body. I mean, I did actually, after the first diagnosis, I had a diagnosis of systemic atrophy. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted yeah. all the time. I couldn't walk anywhere without being tired because my body had acclimated to a sedentary life for way too long. And so I went to a physical therapist and had all these exercises to bring my body back to normal. That was quite a process, but it's not something that is provided for you if you don't ask. And when you are going through such a difficult experience, like everything that you had been through, you know, waking up on the table, oh, you actually have cancer, and everything that unfolded, once you're cancer-free, like, okay, now I'm going to start processing some of this trauma that I wasn't even available to process when it arose. I'm not thinking, if I am thinking about what about my body and recovering from the treatment, it's just somewhere mm -hmm. on the list. <laughs> And it will be a beautiful thing when it becomes part of the mm -hmm. process, when it becomes part of, you know, post-treatment survivorship or how, I don't even know how it would be say this. It would be a post-treatment yeah. treatment. Yeah. Care for ourselves. Absolutely. And so I'm curious about something and, you know, let me know if it's okay to ask. I can tell you it's okay I'm to wondering ask. It's what fine. It, <laughs> <laughs> You've kind of given some insight into what it's like to be told you're never truly cured. 
Because yeah. my doc told me that I am cured. Okay. And you've given some insight into it because you've said, like, no, I'm going to keep coming back for exams. I'm going to keep coming back yep. for tests. Exactly. But I'm wondering what it's like to have a diagnosis they tell you that they can't cure. Because I can make up in my imagination what that might be like, but I don't know. I'll, I'll answer it this way. Let me tell you what I've done in the past 12 years. Number one, what I want. <laughs> I've done what I've wanted to do. Um, okay. I am remarried. I've been remarried now for nine years. And so all, well, that ends well, but we travel, we go, except for the summer, unfortunately, we go to a different country in Europe every year. Um, mm. We paraglide off the Swiss Alps. We, uh, we go whale watching in Hawaii. I, when he and I started dating, I told him, I mean, we had to have some pretty weird conversations on date number two because you need to know, A, I can't have kids and yada, 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 yada. And so, you know, we had to set that up pretty, pretty straightforward right from the start. But I also told him, I need you to know, A, I could possibly be a ticking time bomb, not quite sure, might have an expiration date, but everyone does. So there's that. So you need to be aware of what you're getting yourself into. So relationship-wise, it shifted that significantly because he needed to be aware before he said check the box yes or no he needed to get it you know <laughs> so yeah i may not be a safe yeah bet. you're uh, you really need to know what you're getting yourself into so relationship wise it shifted that because we had to have a lot of blunt conversations from the beginning but i also told him i don't mean this to be selfish but i kind of mean this to be selfish and i have to say i'm okay with it I will do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. I will not hurt you. I will not break your heart. So I don't mean that. But I mean, I want you to come along with me in this process. But if I, like I went to Germany, Switzerland, and um, Australia with him, and I went to Greece, or without him, and I went to Greece without him a couple of years ago because he couldn't go. And I said, Love you, see you when I get home. You know, I, I am going to do what I want to do, and I want you along with me in this. But if you can't, I'm still going to do what I want to do, you know? So that's kind of a, a sideways way to answer your question. But how does it feel to be told you're never fully ever cured? For me, it feels like doing whatever the heck I want to do when I want to do it. It also feels like, I don't know, it, it, it feels no different than anybody else, too, I think. Because I'm just as likely to die from a car wreck tomorrow. You know, more likely, probably. So I think the rational side of me was like, well, I mean, okay, we're all going to die. <laughs> so I'm just going to speed up this whole, like, seeing the world thing, just in case. Um, now years ago, it was mm, significantly more suffocating. It was terrifying. Uh, when my husband and I started dating, I for sure pushed him away a few times. Like, let's get them before they get you kind of thing. So years ago, it was definitely a lot more suffocating. There was a lot more fear that went along with it. You do get a false sense of security with every year that passes. And I use the term false sense of security kind of 
lightly, facetiously, whatever you want to say, because there is a lot of truth to that. But also, I mean, like I said, I've got a, I've got a survivor friend here, same stage as me, 11 years out, and she's now experiencing recurrence. So how does it feel? It feels like reality. Feels like there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just gonna go about my merry way as much as I possibly can. Um, that also being said, this hasn't happened in a long time, but I used to have every once in a while, you know, people stick their, foots, their feet in their mouth and they're trying to relate and they're just trying to think of something to say to you and it just really makes it weird for everyone sometimes. But I've had people say, like maybe I'll complain about something piddly and they'll say, well, aren't you just, aren't you just happy to be alive? Okay. So not only did I have cancer, not only did I nearly die, not only have I been put on this pedestal and sometimes I have to act happier, stronger, etc., than I feel because I'm your quote unquote hero but now you're going to take away my right to be a normal human with normal human emotions. I can't sweat the small stuff anymore. That's not a phrase for me that I don't sweat the small stuff. That's just, that's just silly talk. That's crazy talk. Of course we still sweat the small stuff. And so there have been instances like that where I've thought, well, wait a minute. I, I still have the right, even, even if tomorrow was my last day, even if my, I'm diagnosed with a recurrence next week, I still have the right to be just as normal as you. And please, please let me try. Please let me try. So that's what it feels like. It feels like reality maybe times 100. Gotcha. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm hearing you say that. I'm already clear, Mandy, that having gone through cancer, that you do look at life differently than you used to. And it sure. has changed who you are. And you clearly yeah. respond to certain circumstances differently than you have in the past. But it doesn't take away your humanity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take away yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and people can misunderstand that. Like, I'm still human. If anything, I'm more human. I'm more connected to my experience of life, which includes life's difficulties. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I haven't lost my humanity. And Mm -hmm. that's why I love when people who are not cancer survivors listen to this podcast because you know the family members the friends because people have already told me they're like they've called me and said bird i've never had a diagnosis and no one in my life is no one close to me has had one but your podcast has given me such an insight into a part of life that fascinates me that i never knew i was fascinated by yeah people people don't know and my goodness they can say some things that uh (laughs) (laughs) just yeah, it, 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 it can be deflating if we don't recognize that that is their experience of life. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not 
uh, I don't have to engage with it. But uh -huh. yes, that's a very enlightened way of saying, holy cow, how did you just say that to me? And uh, I'm going to get to the place where there's no judgment. But in the moment, I'm like, excuse me, what did you just <laughs> say to me? Are you kidding me right yeah, now? And you said, yeah. you said, so what's it like to be told you're never going to be cured? You're like, it's reality. Uh, it's yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. No one has ever asked me that before. And so I had to think about what does this feel like right now? And at this point, 12 years in, it is, it just feels like my day. It just feels like me. Uh, feels like being allowed to be selfish. And again, I don't mean selfish in a damaging way. I mean, free to, to do and be and see and all the things. Yeah. You... Because I can. It, I, I love that. Like yeah. people say to me, I don't know, you know, how mm -hmm. I would go through cancer if I was diagnosed. You know, you inspired me the way you went through it. I don't know what I would do. And I say, I have no idea. But if you're asking me, yeah. you'd probably go through it the way you go through everything else. Like if I had to guess, Mandy, this mm -hmm. is the way you've always been in life, or at least for, you know, your adult life. You're like, reality is what reality is. I'm going to mm -hmm. keep living. Yeah. And, and that's going to include some heartbreak and frustration mm -hmm. and lots of joy and adventure, but life is what it is. And selfish, yeah, that's, it's, selfish is a word that has taken on, you know, a derogatory meaning, but there's so much of selfishness that is not unkind, inconsiderate, lack of concern. It's selfish, I'm being focused on myself. Mm -hmm there are many of us where that does not come naturally and it had yeah. to be learned to put myself mm -hmm. higher on the priority list. Like for instance, on the top. <laughs> what does that even look right? like? Who knows? I mean, right? <laughs> think about, I mean, I was, I was married to an addict for heaven's sakes. Talk about putting yourself last, you know? So I hear you. <laughs> I see you right yeah, now, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I love that you said, you know, what I heard from you in your speaking about your relationship with your husband and the trips you took separately, like what I heard yeah. is that partnership is not an agreement to put your self-expression on pause. Yeah. Oh, I like that. And yeah. I'm currently single and I've dated, well... Let's be honest, like one relationship since my marriage ended a bazillion <laughs> years ago was real, but <laughs> I had clearly not an interest in being in one. And so it's not something that I am seeking right now, but it's something that I'm open sure. to. Something that would, you know, it's mm -hmm. not missing from my life, but it would be wonderful if it were there. Mm -hmm. And what you spoke to is such an accurate way of expressing where I am in my life right now. Like I want the relationship that I'm in to be with a person who is going to do what she wants to do. And being my partner doesn't mean that you put your self-expression on pause. That's something I did in my first marriage. And my, my former wife and I, she and I have talked about that plenty. I let her know how, you know, I put my self-expression on pause to be a husband and to be a stepfather and then to be a father. And that had an impact on her and on my family 
and on my entire life. Like when we put ourselves on pause to make a relationship work, we often don't know we're doing it. I didn't realize I was doing it. But after the marriage ended, I looked back and I was like, wow, I tamped out my fire and it was embers so I could proudly be a husband and a father. And that just didn't work. I don't want anybody Mm -hmm. putting their fire out for me. Yeah, I may be like, you're really going to go to Greece without me? And you're like, yeah. And then that's for me to do my work and get, oh, this isn't about me. It, it, It may be bringing up issues I have around relationship that are mine and not hers. <laughs> or it may not, but I just love that you did that. It's like you're not putting your really you're not putting your self-expression on pause. You're not putting your living life on pause. And you got really clear about that. And the fact that you could the fact that you had the language to let him know that. So then he could freely choose. She's a match for me or she's not. Mm-hmm. And he chose yes. <laughs> and that's wonderful he chose yes for some reason and and he's still here (laughs) (laughs) well congratulations high five to him (laughs) Mm. everybody wins i guess i don't know we'll ask him later (laughs) (laughs) i've learned so much from this conversation with you me too thank you thank you i really appreciate it it's been great getting to know you those of you listening, Mandy and I have never met. We just, we haven't even, I mean, I basically said, do you want to be my podcast through Instagram? She's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And I'll tell you, the reason that I did that is because I'm opening myself up to opportunity, like we've already talked about. And I told a friend of mine before you and I logged on, I told her I was doing this and she's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. So this is my second podcast to do now. And she said, I can't believe you're doing that. Are you nervous? And I was like, no, I mean, it's my life I'm talking about. It's not like I had to prepare anything. I kind of know what happened. So check, that's easy. And I'm just at the point where I'm opening myself up and I'm saying yes. Dang, it feels good. So thank you. Thank you for giving me something to say yes to. It's been awesome. You are so welcome. All right. You have a great day. Awesome. You too. Thank you. Bye. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.